Facebook.org, established by Stephen Ryder in 1996, is the world's largest public repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. With thousands of contemporary press reports, scans of official documents, photographs, and a message board to discuss and debate the crimes and investigation in Victorian London, Casebook.org is the sponsor of RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And we join the show already in progress. When it comes to published written accounts of the Whitechapel murders outside of newspapers and police memoirs, fictional portrayals preceded nonfiction works by a good 40 years. Some early works that used the crimes of Jack the Ripper as either their plot or setting, and indeed some more recent books, were presented if they were factual, but in reality contained so many inventions that the books fall squarely into the fiction category. I'm thinking of books like Uncle Jack, for instance, right? But for, for the sake of this discussion, Ripper fiction are books that proclaim themselves as fiction and not non-fiction books that are so full of inaccuracies that we would today consider them entirely make-believe, right? Does everyone understand the distinction? Yep. Um, yep. Now, all of our authors on the panel have written works of Ripper fiction, and so I'd like to simply go around the proverbial roundtable and have them introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their books, uh, starting with Bernard. Hi there, everybody. Um, this is Bernard Boley, and you will probably be figuring out easily that I'm a French-Canadian with my uh, French-Canadian accent, uh, okay? So um, I, I wrote a novel, the title is My Ripper Hunting Days, which is basically a story about a young guy uh, living in London who's uh, introduced to Francis Tumblety, uh, and he believes that Tumblety is Jack the Ripper. So we're starting uh, to uh, try to catch up with the guy, and uh, Tumblety always managed to avoid him. So it's uh, a, a pursuit that goes on, you know, for weeks. Uh, he even crosses over to Canada while Tumblety went into the United States, and, and you know, it's a Quite special. I mean, what I wanted to do basically is try to uh, tell a story about someone who wasn't a police officer, but you know, the simple guy living somewhere in London who you know decided to uh, hunt for the Ripper, hunt the Ripper. So that's basically uh, the, the storyline. I won't go into details because otherwise I'd lose a lot of time with you guys. So that's a me. And Daniel. This is Daniel Dark um, from Nashville, Tennessee, and my book is Knife's Tale. It is published by Seven Star Press, and it is a diary of um, what would have made a man become Jack the Ripper. If we were looking at somebody, it's a psychological thriller about the person and not about the five murders. I actually skipped the five murders altogether. And... He is a um, female gynecologist in my book, which is totally fiction. Um, no proof of anything that I have written in my book except for a few um, character names. And I looked at the actual, you know, I come from a detective family. My father was a homicide detective for Nashville, Tennessee um, for many years of my life, and that's what I grew up with. So I looked at all the different cases and stuff and then 
made a choice on how I wanted to go and made the um, Ripper individual a gynecologist in my book and gave him <laughs> full rights of being able to do the murders and lead um, the police in a different direction. And that's pretty much what my book's about, so. Interesting. My colleague. Yes. Uh, my name is Michael Hawley. Um, some of you know me as a, a researcher for nonfiction for uh, Francis Tumblety. And uh, there is a, a one, one's in final edit now, but the previous one was called The Ripper's Haunts uh, that uh, I had lectured on before. The interesting thing that I discovered with uh, connection close to Francis Tumblety was that the Scotland Yard did a uh, investigated a possibility that there was uh, the killer was looking for the elixir of life, and I thought, how intriguing! And both Bernard and I, we know. Uh, I mean, Tumblety's just an interesting character anyway, so he's perfect for fiction novels as well. So. I wanted to connect to both since uh, uh, what I did was is the idea was is there is a modern day serial killing going on in Western New York where Tumblety was actually had um, lived some of his life and that uh, but today there's a serial killing a copycat serial killer that is copycatting Jack the Ripper and also looking for the, the elixir of life. So the idea would be well is it a copycat serial killer or I wanted the reader to think, well, maybe the elixir of life actually worked. So kind of go back and forth with the reader to see, to have them uh, kind of question that. So it kind of borders on the uh, um, supernatural. So it's a fun book to read. But one thing, as all of us know, is that when when you do a his, a historical fiction, you, it's fiction, but you better have the facts right. So I really try to do that as well as I can to get the uh, everything that went... Uh, transpired in the fall of 1888, correct. Matt Lation. Good morning, everybody. I'm Matt Lation. I'm based in Tampa, Florida. I probably don't sound like it. I'm originally from Australia, but moved over to the U.S. about 14 years ago. Um, my book is, my first book, it's called Jack the Ripper, Live and Uncut. Um, and it's this, a story of a, an investigative journalist who's recruited by a group called Limbo. And Limbo's primary function is to solve cold cases. They use time travel to do it, and they offer him more or less the uh, this case to to solve Jack the Ripper. Um, when he when he's sent back in time, though, his presence is more spiritual, so he can move around you know, London's East End uh, as freely as he likes. He can see everything, he can hear everything, but he cannot be seen or heard himself. So he's more or less like a ghost, and so he can really get a front row seat to do the murders and to, to, you know, any investigations he wants to do. But during his time there, he realises that there's a hell of a lot more to this than, than he had bargained for. And his employer was not to be to be trusted. And all of a sudden, it more or less becomes a game of life and death being played across three centuries. Um, similar to what Mike was saying, um, I actually wanted to write something that was very accessible fiction or a very accessible thriller, but I wanted to try and remain as historically accurate as I could. Um, I've been a student of the Ripper case for a long time, and I'm like a lot of people, I get frustrated when I see stuff that is blatantly inaccurate. Um, obviously, you take some 
uh, liberties with fiction, but for me, I tried to do it with the grey areas of the case, the things that are unexplained, and, and try to sort of weave it in that way. So that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, the, the book. And Jana Oliver. Hi there. Um, probably the best way to explain the Time River series, there's three books in it, um, is I didn't really want to write a story about Jack. I wanted to write a story about the environment around Jack. So the the entire ambiance of the East End during the murders. So I uh, brought a time traveler back from 2057, dropped Jacinda in the middle of 1888 London. She was not supposed to be anywhere near the Ripper murders, but her employer is going bankrupt. So, hey, you know, you cut corners, so you leave your time rovers, your time travelers there as long as possible. The problem is she's supposed to be finding a missing time tourist and she can't find him. And in the process also, there are other forces working on changing the entirety of British history. So she gets caught in the middle of a, uh, an incredibly vibrant time in English history and also in an area that she absolutely detests Victorian England. So she is the ultimate outsider watching all this going on and trying not to change history while trying to bring back one missing time tourist. Both Mike and Mark, you mentioned that when you're writing the historical fiction, it's very important that you get the history right. What lengths did the pair of you go to, and this applies to the other authors as well, to make sure that you get your history right? And what sources did you use? Can we go first, Mike? Uh, oh, sure, I'll go first. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Uh, the well, because I joined into the, the Ripper world through nonfiction and uh, and been re researching uh, that, I kind of took advantage of that part. And I continue to do that research. But uh, what happens is, though, as you keep on going, I, I've, I've always thought that was important. As a matter of fact, my publisher asked me to read a, uh, a, uh, a Ripper fiction I think it was called Stalking Jack the Ripper, and it made the New York Times bestseller list. And so the, he wanted me to do a uh, a review of that. So I did, and it, uh, so when they got to Catherine Eddowes, here's a Scotland Yard uh, detective in charge of the Catherine Eddowes crime scene. just kind of bothered me because the, the author didn't realize that uh, there were two police departments there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it just, I couldn't continue to read the book it took me a while so not that everybody's like that and most people don't know the uh the details but um but as uh, you know i got that advice that uh, you need to have your facts right with uh historical fiction so i it, maybe it's just a little bit of me but uh, that's where i really uh, wanted to uh focus on especially since i had been researching that first uh, and for me it was a case of uh you know, I, like I said, I've been a fan of the case for a long time, so what I wanted to do was write a story that I would enjoy myself. You know, I've seen other movies and, and read some books that, that fictionalise the, the Ripper almost to the point of trivialising the case, and I definitely didn't want to do that. And re the research was definitely intense and long. Um, I think the thing that's critical with researching these things is never swearing by one source. Um, you know, I remember right, you know, doing some research at, at, in Whitechapel itself and seeing some street names and 
on some maps and then they have different names on other maps and then it's a case of, okay, well, when did this street become, you know, when did, like uh, Church Street, for example, didn't become Fournier Street till 1892. But, you know, on all of the old map, the, a lot of the old maps I look up, it has it listed as Fournier Street. So I definitely tried to be as right as much as I could. Um, and I, th I thought anything that was unknown or unexplained, I thought was, was fair game um to, to weave into the to the fictional narrative but yeah I, I didn't want a book that people would just pick apart um so you know i wanted something that they could actually enjoy and i think you know whilst this this can be enjoyed by someone who doesn't know the ripper at all you know people that know every little detail can actually pick up some things in the story and go oh yeah okay that's cool how that's that's that got in there um i lived on the casebook website for for 18 months uh, i lived on the J the jtr forum site for for 18 months bought many many books uh both uh tangible copies and and um kindle copies but yeah i like i said you, you, when you're researching these things you a lot of the time you can't put your stock in one source you've got to try and you know look at at least half a dozen to make sure that there's consistency people say Yep, uh, sorry, I was going to say, I know Jana also uh, did <laughs> extensive to make sure and set herself up for some floggings and made sure her accuracy was, was on point as well. I didn't realize, I knew I'd done a lot of research going into the, the series, but I didn't quite realize how many books I had until I was selling out everything we owned to move out of the country. And I added up the books, and I had almost uh, almost a hundred of them. And I had read the majority of them. <laughs> I I kind of went overboard, but um, I also by that point, I was already connected to the Ripper community, and I didn't want any of these folks sitting around a pub some evening going, "Well, Oliver sure blew it, didn't she?" You know, I I you know because there was such a vast resource there of knowledge and besides doing all the online research and doing you know i kept going over and visiting england when the pound was two dollars a pound <laughs> and my, my husband says you can't do this online i go no i gotta walk the, the back alleys you know that's that's the kind of ambiance you wanted but um in the in the grand scheme of things though it, it ended up being so much research i had to actually back off and not put all that in the book or it would have just ended up being uh, you know, a nonfiction book, you had to kind of weave in, and I know the other authors have done this, the weave in the key things that give a sense of the time and, and the, the people, and also the little occasional little icky things that I pulled out of Charles Booth's writings and put them in there. And I had people go, that couldn't be real. And I go, yeah, either. actually, yes, that, yes. So it, it's a, it's a blend between being a, a writer or being a, you know, a, a a wordsmith, and also then taking that detail and pulling it in, and it, it's sometimes very difficult, but when you get it right, you're going, wow, that just rocks. Yeah, this, that saying, it takes a village to raise a child, I think it takes a library to, to write a ripper book. Oh, because God, yes. So much reading that you've got to do, but if you know, if accuracy is what, what you're aiming for, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the price, and it's usually worth it. One of the things that uh, when I was doing with, because I... I I, I'm knee deep in the tumbledy stuff, and there's always new stuff that uh, I did take some cre uh, little liberty. Uh, one example for me is that 
Chief, uh, Chief Inspector Littlechild talked about Tumblety's dossier with a large dossier. The the evidence I'll, I'll, I later get it will get into, but it was not. Um, I, I'm convinced that it was in CID. It was not in Special Branch for a number of reasons. But in my book, I thought it would be more interesting that that dossier was under the control of Littlechild. So I go into uh, I keep that though. Well, the, the main concern is basically uh, trying to uh, remain plausible. Everything has to be plausible. The facts have to be correct. That was my main concern. In my case, I, I mean, I, I bought a street map, a London street map, 1884, which cost me a fortune. I bought also uh, a Bradfield guide only to figure out at what time trains in my character would be going and leaving London to go to mm -hmm. also cost me a fortune. Just also knowing how the people would be dressed, I bought a, a store catalog from the period. So it really cost me uh, 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 to make sure my facts were straight. The rest, you know, how, how you use these facts is uh, is up to the writer. I mean, everything has to be plausible. Uh, the, I had the same concern with uh, my characters. Uh, actually, this is Bernard speaking, okay? Uh, I, I had the same concern with the uh, who actually existed, like uh, Aberline, George Lush, and, and the others, to make sure that um, um, I would stay within what we knew about them and extend their behavior as we, you know, already know of. So that's the main concern. The last thing I had to do in terms of preparation was uh, reading uh, a lot of books from, you know, the English books from the period, because mm -hmm. uh, as Canadians and Americans. We build our sentences in a way the British would have done in the uh, late uh, uh, Victorian era. So everything had to be uh, acceptable for those who had many concerns. And one example of an error I found in my own book, uh, what I was writing, <clears throat> at one point the characters were eating Vichyssoise soup, only to find out weeks later that Vichyssoise, the Vichyssoise soup was created during the First World War. So I had to change these. <laughs> Yeah. That, that's uh, sort of funny. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a, I actually had a Victorian restaurant at one time that I, I'm a chef by trade originally and um, studied Victorian cooking and have a um, few hundred cookbooks from the Victorian era in my collection. And when it came to doing research, I had read probably a a hundred or so books on the Ripper case, it, the cases themselves. And I wasn't, because I wasn't using the actual murders per se, but I wanted the psychological part of it. I'm not being, you know, my, mine is totally fiction on what, what all I'm saying he did prior to these murders and after the murders. But I went in, I've got some books on um, the London News bound that I use that for historical records and stuff mm -hmm. um, and you know then all the the books that I've got because most of my book collection that I'm collecting now are from 1910 and prior to that that is what I collect in, in the way of my library now I do you know buy like fiction books and stuff from other authors and stuff but in doing the research and everything, I, I utilized everything that I had here at my house 
on the Ripper case, went out and bought more stuff, talked to other people that were doing research on um, Victorian London and stuff, and I'm actually part of um, some other groups and stuff that have, that, like, I dress every day like you see me in my pictures. That is me every day. I wear a top hat every day and stuff like that, so I, I'm pretty much immersed into the Victorian era is what I do, and then the writing and everything, the way that I wrote was the way that they would have, you know, pretty much talked back in those days. So that is what, you know, that's how I came about it. And going all the way back to trying to find out what the weather was on certain days. <laughs> oh, the times, the Thames Tidal times. Oh, good God. <laughs> so. There is a big difference but, um, between, like, some of our authors here on the panel have used time travel to drop their protagonist into Victorian London and, and, and um, as a separate um, fish-out-of-water type of a story and using the Whitechapel murders as the backdrop. Um, but like with Daniel's book, the way he approaches it is, is a, a, the psychological standpoint of a fictional killer. Which, like he kind of said, that that um, angle w wouldn't necessarily have to stick to the hard facts of the actual case, you know. So I guess my question is, what what made you guys decide upon Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as the setting for your fiction books in the first place? Is it just because it's easy? Uh, what, is it is it easy? Um, you know, a historical period to kind of put it in um, because so many different fictional representations have been made of uh, Jack the Ripper, or what? In my case, it was. I was interested in the murders themselves because it was a case that had never been solved. And like I said earlier, my father was a homicide detective and we had talked about, you know, I've talked about Jack the Ripper since I was a kid, you know, with him and different things like that. Um, but I, you know, reading all the books, I had read all these books about the cases and stuff but I had never read a book on what would have caused a man to become Jack the Ripper, and I decided to write one. Uh, this is Bernard. For me to better understand how I uh, worked with the Jack the Ripper cases, I have to tell you how the whole idea came from me, okay? I kept having this dream uh, during uh, weeks and weeks, now probably even months, of this uh, guy in a bar observing a, a predator who was look, uh, looking at women, taking notes and everything, and... Um, the only way for me to, you know, to stop this dream from coming back was to write it down. So uh, the next day, I said to myself, well, this, this could make, turn into a, a nice story. So uh, I, I had to find someone who was a predator. So I figured out that, well, I have to find a serial killer. And who would be the best serial killer? Well, obviously, the first name that came out was Jack the Ripper. So that's how uh, I decided to use Jack the Ripper. I mean, I uh, was looking for some, simply someone. As for the one of the main characters, uh, Francis Tumblety, he was the most obvious flamboyant person, you know, the guy who was never at the right place at the, uh, at the right time. So uh, like Michael said, uh, he's, we know so much about him, and we ignore a lot about him also, is that you can sort of 
easily work around Francis Tumblety to uh, build a, a fascinating story. So that's uh, how I came with the idea of Jack the Ripper. I'll blame uh, Patricia Cornwell <laughs> for many things, but uh, I actually owe her my writing career, so I, I, I have to give her a, a grudging thank you that way. But uh, back in 2002, she, of course, wrote Portrait of a Killer, Jack the River Case Closed, and which in she laid out, of course, for those who may not know the book, that Walter Stickert was Jack the Ripper. And at the time, I thought, how... You know, Walter, of course, is long dead. And how do you uh, how do you battle or how do you fight this sort of of post posthumous, uh, essentially um, blasphemy? And I and I thought, well, what would happen if that actually happened within a uh, story? And that actually was the catalyst for me to start doing even more Ripper research. I was already interested at that point, but. Uh, Good old uh, Patricia was the one who got me thinking about that whole storyline and what happens if somebody wanted to go back and frame someone for being Jack the Ripper so in 2057 they can make a buttload of money unearthing who Jack was. So I took it and, and spun it around with a little time travel and it went from there. So as, as I said, I do sort of owe her a thank you because these books got me my New York contract which went from there. So I grudgingly say thank you, Patricia, but I still don't like her book. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> yes. Um, Matt here. Um, look, for, for me, it was a case of, I initially I was actually doing a masterclass. It's a website that does online tutorials and they have celebrities present their, their special fields. And I did the one that James Patterson did for, for fiction writing. And he had a contest, and the winner would eventually write their book with James Patterson. And I had three ideas for submissions, but I could only submit one. And I came up with the idea of using um, time travel to, to solve um, cold cases. And obviously, to me, there's no greater cold case. And I thought, okay, let's, let's look at this. And I decided that even though it was my favorite submission, I didn't want to put it in. I wanted to keep that for myself. So... When I heard that I didn't win James Patterson's competition, I was the happiest guy on the planet because I was already starting to research this book and, and start writing chapters. So um, for me, it was a case of, yeah, I, I am building this into a series um, involving other you know, old cases um, and u using this type of technology to, to solve them. And yeah, I wanted to start off with, like I said, it's, it's one of the most famous unsolved mysteries out there. It's one of my favourites and... I just thought it would be also good to, it would just bring a lot of um, the, the backdrop of, you know, uh, Victorian London was would just be very creepy as well. So mm. uh, that, that's part of that's why I went with that. You all consulted uh, a lot of primary source material, as you've said, in researching your books. Do any of you read Ripper fiction that, that would give you an idea of what other types of Ripper fiction books are out there? Or do you, did you just... Um, stick to um, primary sources. I did both. So um, I took, you know, the primary, you know, books that are out there, and then the ones that claim to be primary books that are out there that are fiction. Um, right. <laughs> and then you know some like you know, like one that was mentioned earlier, you know, Stalking Jack the Ripper, and you know a few of those other books like that, just to see what else was out there. Um, and see how they came about it. And then, you know, the big book of Jack the Ripper was one that I enjoyed reading. 
that's got some of the cases and a lot of the fiction in there. Right. So this, then Mike here, uh, the what happened with me is I was saying earlier that I actually started as a nonfiction writer with uh, with the Whitechapel murders and Francis Tumblebee. So that idea came up, and I, I'm a storyteller anyway. I love the idea there. So uh, I went the other way where I did not read any Ripper fiction prior to this. So my editor hated my guts for the first while because nonfiction people, what we do is we uh, we we write for arguing, for argument's sake, and kind of convince the reader. Well, a fiction reader does not want to be told what to read or what to think. They want to experience it. So it was a really fun experience for me to turn into a fiction writer, as in how to have the characters tell the story. So it was a huge learning experience, but luckily I had an editor that would uh, kick the crap out of me for a while. But, uh, <laughs> but I got to tell you, writing nonfiction versus fiction, Fiction writing is so fun. It just pulls out your creativity. So it I is prefer true. that fiction. But Bernard, I didn't read any uh, fiction, Jack the Ripper fiction books. I mean, uh, uh, but uh, I read a lot of nonfiction Jack the Ripper books. I mean, almost everything available. Uh, uh, subscribe to newspapers, archi newspaper archives in uh, America, Canada, and UK. You know, just to to learn the actual. Uh, historical elements, you know, to, uh, I, that was the most important. As for storytelling, uh, I didn't have any problem writing a story. I mean, it was quite easy. Although uh, the book you, you actually published is the third rewrite. Uh, it took me years to write the book, and because I went through three complete rewrites, three different stories. And was only satisfied with the third uh, uh, rewrite. So, um, you know, uh, learning, you know, understanding what the other guys did, how they wrote their book, wasn't that important for me because I've been working, I've been writing all my uh, all my life. I mean, professionally speaking, uh, uh, in the political environment and the uh, other areas, uh, and so I, I didn't really need to uh, uh, read books. Uh, I'm a, 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 you know, I read a lot of fiction books, uh, tons of them. So I didn't need that much. Uh, uh, understanding of how the others would ca take care of a story, a, a basic historical fact, and work around it. So that was enough for me, you know. I avoid ripper fiction. I, it, it's one of those, you get into a nice story and you're grooving along and all of a sudden you had a little tiny detail that not many people know. <laughs> And normal people don't know, and <laughs> but I know it, and I'm going, no, 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 that, no, no, that, there was not a fixed point constable there at that time at that night, and it, it ends up screwing things up. So I avoided all of the, the ripper fiction and stuck with the nonfiction, and even to this day, unless it's an exceptional piece of ripper fiction, I won't go anywhere near it, because I have... Well, even with regular reading, I hit something in the Victorian era and they throw out a, a, a term that's obviously not used back in that time period. And I start giving them like three or four little checks and then they're done and then I have to shut the book down. So I'm just way too picky about that. So it was better that I didn't yell a lot and drink more. So no, no ripper fiction. <laughs> Jana, Jana and I have actually had <clears throat> excuse me, this conversation a couple of times, and that's also the same reason that I have not read a lot of Ripper fiction, is that, like, if I'm in the middle of a seven-book series, 
and the author said something in book one that they're now contradicting in book five. <laughs> be a, like a knife in my eyeball where I'm just mm-hmm. like, mm, no. So for that same reason, I haven't read a lot of Ripper Fiction. About, I'm, you know, the only one I have read, Jana's, because I read it before it was published. So, <laughs> But yeah, I'm the same way. Like it has to be accurate or I don't want to read it. Um, for me, I, I didn't I didn't read any Ripper fiction either. I read purely nonfiction. Um, I love reading fictional novels though, and love a good thriller and page turner. And I think some of my favourite authors have definitely influenced how how I tell stories. But one thing that I did do, I think uh, that might be unique, was I looked up a lot of Ripper fictional novels and read reviews. Um, I wanted to see you know what criticisms people had or praise they had for for some of the fictional novels. Because I think it was important to just sort of see what people were getting right and what they weren't, and um, yeah, just be wary of that when when I wrote my own book. So uh, I didn't read any Ripper fiction at all, but I did read um, a lot of reviews for for, for different um, books of Ripper fiction. Like Jana and Mike Holly have both indicated that when they come upon an error in um, in a Ripper fiction book, you know that then they shut the cover um, and don't continue on. Um, and you all have indicated how. Um, important getting everything right is um, in your Ripper fiction book. Do you then concern yourself a lot with what the reception of your book will be amongst Ripperologists? Or as fiction writers, because there's such a broader audience for fiction books and, and in, Jack, in Jack the Ripper fiction books, Ripper, actual Ripperologists are just a small percentage of those readers. Are you overly concerned with how Ripperology will critique your book or or not? I can start that. This is uh, because uh, my wife uh, is, uh, she's a very uh, uh, tough lady, She and I love her, but she, uh, and I used her to read uh, read kind of the uh, the chapters while I was writing them, and she would always say that. She goes, this is for the Ripper experts. Get that crap out of there. Something to that effect. And I'm telling you, uh, she, uh, she is, uh, uh, it's really fun to have my wife who loves fiction, but she could care less about Jack the Ripper. So I exploited her. Um, for, for me, I, I approached a few of the Ripper publications, uh, the Whitechapel Society, Ripperologist Magazine, and, and Red Jack. Um, all, all to review the book because I, I wanted to go to the people that I thought would be the harshest critics um, of it and its details. Uh, they all loved the book, which was very encouraging. But on the flip side of that, <clears throat> the first person that ever read my book was um, someone who's sort of like a kindred spirit. He loves reading thrillers and we um, like similar authors, but he had no, um, he, he had no or very little knowledge of the Jack the Ripper case. And he even said... Um, that if he saw my book in a bookstore, he probably just would have walked past it. But that's probably because the, the cover is, is terrible and I'm in the process of changing it. Um, but uh, he, he loved the book and he actually went up, um, he went up actually buying uh, six, six copies of it to give to other people. So um, I, I, wanted to try and balance, I wanted to try and balance that with getting reviews from people that I thought would pick apart the details as well as people that knew nothing and would hopefully want to know more after they read the book. And um, so, you know, I wanted to try to approach that from both sides. Uh, I wasn't too much concerned about the reader. I had a story I wanted to tell. 
And the story was finished. I submitted it to two editors, and they both had different opinions. One said it's too long. The other one said it's okay. Um, and what what was my main concern is having someone knew about Jack the Ripper, you know, uh, uh, fictional uh, uh, books about Jack the Ripper, and see what his uh, reaction would be, not the uh, average reader. So uh, David Green uh, gave, uh, you know, uh, quite an, uh, a nice uh, uh, review of my book. And so I considered I, if uh, David Green liked my book, I mean, I would have passed the edition, which I did. I did actually pass the edition. David Green, the uh, fiction um, editor and book reviewer for Ripperologist magazine. Right. Exactly. And so when, I, when he doesn't like it, he's going to kill you, I mean, but if he likes it, <laughs> uh, sometimes he's going to say, you know, a few words, yeah, he liked it. But in my case, I mean, I was really surprised about uh, what he said about it. And uh, we began exchanging after that uh, through email and, you know, giving more details on how I approach the book, how I approach the characters and everything. So. Uh, for me, you know, um, I, like I said earlier, I, I, I wrote, I mean, I wrote speeches for prime ministers, ministers, members of the parliament. Uh, I, I wrote governmental papers, so I knew I, I could write. So, uh, and they would pass the, you know, they would test me, you know, uh, if you write a, a speech for a prime minister, he's going to either kill you or he's going to like it or ask you to change everything. At one point, uh, you know, they didn't even ask me to change anything in the speeches I wrote for them. So I, I had a good, a good opinion of myself as a writer. Um, for the Ripperology uh, community, I wasn't too much concerned because, you know, if you go on the forums, if you go on Facebook, you know sort of expect uh, of uh, fiction and non-fiction books. So uh, I had a good understanding afterwards. <clears throat> yeah, this is Daniel here. Yeah. Um, I didn't really worry about, you know, the accuracy of everything as much for the ripperologist as much as I did for myself and being true to myself. You know, it is a piece of fiction and everything. There is things that are not going to be totally accurate historically because of the fact that it's, you know, months prior to the murder and then, you know, skipping the murders and then after the murder, you know, what I gave as what he might have done after the five murders and stuff. So, I did, like I said, I didn't worry about, you know, the ripperologist. That was not even a concern of mine. It was more concern of being true to myself on the book. I actually thought of both, the, the regular everyday reader. And then because I had some friends who are ripperologists, I, as I said, I didn't want them to go, well, you kind of phoned that in, didn't you? And you hear you, you know, you asked us questions and you didn't use any of that. So I, I kept them in the back of my head. But invariably no matter how much research you did and I did I you know you still screw things up and uh, I I did and I actually went back and fixed it in a later edition because it was a screw up but in general I was more focused in in the overall story because I thought if the story really worked uh, the ripperologist wouldn't be upset with me because I hadn't gotten things wrong and the average reader would go this is cool I can get into this world and you know walk along with my heroine and see what happens to her right it's, so it's not that different than nonfiction authors um, in that respect is they make mistakes their mm -hmm. their mistakes are quickly pointed out to them on <laughs> the message boards but 
to uh, a reader who isn't so deeply involved in the cases like forum message board posters would pick it up and still get what the author intended and and um, so the author the author would be successful in what mm. they they were trying to um, <coughs> produce you know uh, this is Bernard again. I would like to add just one thing I forgot to tell about and talk to you is that I relied at one point on beta readers. You know, they, uh, I, I had three quarters of the novel, the last version of the novel finished, and I decided to uh, uh, ask uh, some guys, uh, you know, professional readers and reviewers to have a look at it. They were people I knew uh, quite well, but um, and they were quite honest. And, you know, what I wanted to know is that is the story well managed? Uh, you know, is it well written? And that was the main concern I had. And they quickly gave me a positive response. So I didn't need to go and get some uh, review uh, uh, reviews after the book was worked. I, I don't even read the reviews actually. The only thing I, I, I check out is the royalties coming in, and they're coming in <laughs> on a regular. So not, I, I, never I don't, And that's um, Bernard by uh, self-publishing your book. Um, that that's uh, using beta readers. It's kind of what you, you almost have to do, as because wouldn't wouldn't if you went to a, through a normal quote publishing um, outfit like Jana, for instance, wouldn't they have editors and readers built into that system automatically? Or uh, and that kind of leads me to also something I wanted to get into is if someone can explain to me the difference between self-publishing and vanity publishing and publishing through a mainstream or whatever or small press publishing house what advantages and disadvantages that might have to the author not really i mean uh, if you go on the goodreads uh, site you'll see that a lot of people uh, you know don't rely upon uh, you know better readers or whatever they just write their book and publish it uh, and uh, that's about it. It, it. For me, it was basically uh, um, my. Uh, I, I, for me, there's nothing uh, um, uh, more important than perfection. Okay, so I'll take. I'll use the tools I need to achieve this level of perfection and ask opinions. But it's not something you'll see quite a lot with uh, self-publishers. Uh, quite the contrary. This is Daniel. Um, I I use beta readers and. My beta readers are who actually got me a publisher. That's how, how I wound up with a publishing contract, was having beta readers. And the first time that I put it out there through for some beta readers, I had, um, like Bernard, I had written about three quarters of the book. And they looked at the book and everything, and they said, this doesn't work for us. About every one of them in the group said, this doesn't work for us. And I went back and rewrote the, that first three quarters of the book again, and then they came back and said, "Yeah, that'll work," hmm. you know. And you know that's where where I was because I was trying to get to where I ha had a broader audience with the um, YA and stuff like that, and, and it not and I wasn't worrying about, or I was worrying about how I was phrasing things so that they couldn't do it. And then after I was released to take say take all that out of there and just go ahead and make the book the way I want it to, then everybody liked the book. So, but my beta readers are the ones that actually got me to, to a publisher that wanted my book. Hmm. Uh, so. Here's Mike. Uh, oh, well, interestingly for me was 
my beta readers, two beta readers, you may know them, Stuart Evans and Jonathan Hainsworth. So, but both are both are pretty much nonfiction people. But uh, so what happened is, as uh, but I also had beta readers around the area. So what I what I uh, when you first go in, publishers tend not to want to have a good book; they want to have a good author. And so if you're a first-time publisher, it's really difficult to break in. So sometimes that's where the benefit of self-publishing and even vanity publishers where you, you pay and then they'll publish regardless. Um, but the the problem there is that uh, sometimes you don't get good uh, reviewers that. So some of the reviewing, they require that it has to come from some kind of publisher. So I kind of did the backfeed technique, uh, just kept on writing. And then once once I had a few things written down, then I was able to contact a smaller online publisher that did have uh, editing and that they paid for. So, but then once there's a a list, you have your uh, curriculum vitae or your resume that you have a lot of, a lot of background. Then you can kind of hook a bigger publisher. So then once you hook a bigger publisher, I, I purposely dis- I got a publisher that did both fiction and nonfiction. So then. Once they did my uh, nonfiction, I said, hey, I've got these uh, fiction novels. Uh, would you like to take them over? And they said, of course. So I kind of backfed. That's kind of the process that I did. Jonathan, would you like me to give a, an overview of the three or four different kinds of publishing? Please, Jenna. Please. Um, <clears throat> I come, I've started self-publishing back in 2001 when it was a no-no. It's uh, now sometimes referred to as indie publishing. So I, and then I went into a small press and then a, a traditional big five press, one of the big five in New York. So I, and now I'm back to indie publishing. So I have kind of that, that circle there where I've watched this happen since, well, 2001. Um, to give people an overview, a traditional publisher, and this all varies depending on the size of the press, may or may not offer the uh, writer or the author a an advance against sales. And that's a whole other discussion about what advances and things like that are. But the uh, traditional publisher usually offers an advance, key phrase usually. They handle the editorial aspects, they handle the cover aspects, and they handle the distribution. Uh, because of that, uh, the author receives a whole lot less than they standardly would if they were, you know, as a percentage than they would if they are self-published or indie published. Self or indie published essentially does acts as your publisher, as your own publisher. You go out and contract someone to handle your cover art, to handle your typesetting, to handle your uh, your editing. And as a result, you set you are setting your own prices for the books. And especially in ebooks, you will get a higher percentage of each sale than you would if you were traditional. Now, the joy of having your traditional, especially a big publisher behind you, is they have a lot of clout and they can get the books into the bookstores and push push your, your series. Uh, as an indie publishing, all that falls on you. So you have to do all the marketing and all the everything, even though you still need to do marketing if you're traditional. It's, there's less of a push for them to do marketing nowadays, unless they pay you really big bucks and then they will pull out an entire dog and pony show for you. But if you're the average author, you're going to still be doing uh, still be doing your own marketing. But under indie publishing, you have more direct control over the final product, which is a plus and a negative. Each, each of these have definite pluses and negatives. Vanity publishing 
which I have avoided, and it depends on the vanity publisher. And they're, they're talking about, they call them vanity because they said, hey, your book sucks so badly, no one else would possibly publish it. So you're paying these people money to put this out. In essence, what you're doing is you are paying this print service provider to create your book and to then distribute it and whatever. And they, and you're, you're, you can pay thousands of dollars for that to happen. And so I'm always a little leery of vanity publishing. Uh, some people have had success with it. A lot of people haven't. It depends on the publisher. And since I'm one of those who's, you know, God hates a coward, I went ahead and indie published and I've been indie publishing for, you know, 17 years, but not everybody's geared that way. So they really have to sit down and decide what their book is, where their book is best going to be marketed, who's going to be their, their, uh, their uh, target audience and whether they have, you know, whether they want to tackle this themselves and go from there. And with the advent of eBooks, like you were saying, the self-publishing industry has just exploded. So, mm -hmm. I mean, when you can write a book, um, using iBooks or something like that and then upload it to Amazon and mm -hmm. sell it for $2.99, then you're done pretty much, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and, and see, the difference is if you upload it and it's $2.99, the author is making an average of 65 or 70% on that book sale versus if you're working through a traditional publisher, you're getting a way lower percentage. But then you've also had to pay for all the editorial and the copy and took all the risk up front. So that's, it's kind of a trade-off there. The biggest problem that I see with the, uh, with the self-publishing like you're talking about though is a lot of them, they don't, they don't spend out the, the correct money to have it edited mm -hmm. right or to have right. a good cover put on it or things like that, that we all know that, you know, has to be done or the book is gonna fail. Mm -hmm. That's actually a question I would have, uh, Daniel, just off the back of what you were saying there. Um, and it's, it's probably got a, a marked difference depending if you are self-published or if you go through a traditional publishing route. But how do you guys go about selecting the covers that are going to be used in your books? Mine was done through the publisher, so I, I don't know. <laughs> they <laughs> Well, with the book cover, uh, with the, my publisher, they have their own artist. And so what happens is she contacts me and she goes, what would you like to have on your book? And so give me some ideas of what you'd like. So I would steal ideas uh, from other authors, other books, and say, I'd kind of like to have this. And then that's, uh, so then she pops out uh, a book cover and I get all excited. And then uh, in my case, the, the, the last book with the subtitle, I kind of popped that out on Facebook, and then uh, Tom Westcott said, don't you think you want to write this? And so basically it was be because of Tom Westcott that uh, my little subtitle changed. <laughs> uh, this is Bernard here. As, as for my cover, I mean, uh, I designed it myself because I'm quite good in graphics. And uh, what I did is a little survey. I sent the, uh, the cover to some uh, about 20 people uh, and ask them, you know, with a series of questions, what you, you about the color, the 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 background thing, the images, and everything, and it came out uh, quite positive. So I decided to, to go with it. Basically, the whole thing is visibility. Okay, uh, does your cover stand out? It when placed amongst so many other books, does it really come out? So uh, I decided I decided to rely upon the red color, which is not often used. And it, it comes out. But again, 
going back to you know being published by uh, again the question uh, of visibility, self-publishing doesn't rent your book in the uh, you know the uh, uh, the libraries and all these areas where everybody uh, can see your book. That's the main problem. Uh, even if you're going with a, a publisher, it doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money. You know, if it doesn't sell, I mean, if you've got the, one of the good publisher, uh, it, it's basically uh, the content is going to decide if you're making money or not. And, and the cover is quite important as to the uh, attract people to, you know, have a look, at least have a look at the book and see what's going on with it. Mine, like you was talking about a while ago, my, my publisher has their own artist, own cover artist and everything. And that that's basically all that I had involvement with was when it came to the actual covers the artist contacted me and said you know what would you like your cover to look like and i sent a few pictures and everything of what i wanted done he had seen pictures of me and he asked me to you know could i take a picture of myself with a big knife i did that he he plugged a picture of me into the front cover of a picture that he had taken in london and digitalized it to the cover that I've got today. So I thought that guy on your front cover looked familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's actually a picture of me that I took in the living room of my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the cover actually. <laughs> I do too. As, well, one as, thing that's important for me in terms of covers is that uh, you want to make a difference with other kinds, uh, you know, uh, books within, uh, containing the similar. Uh, story, basic story. Uh, I wanted to move away from that because it, in, in another area of you know of, uh, fiction, if you look at the romance book, the, the 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 cover is always you always have this muscle guy, uh, you know, with his torso and everything uh, on these romance books. So everybody's sort of working within the same same patterns depending on the genre. So I wanted to go away from that and uh, well and risk it out. It seems to be be working well. In my case, actually, um, for me, and you hit on a very good thing there, Bernard. I, if I base, uh, because I am in the process of changing my cover. If I base it on trends that I see on my Twitter feed, uh, I, I basically have a cover of a guy's six-pack with abs, <laughs> and he's holding a bloody knife. So, um, no, I with with my cover, I um, hired a, a professional artist. Uh, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to. Um, a cover that would stand out uh, among you know a list of thumbnail covers um, but I think in the ultimately now that I look at it um, I think the cover is a little bit too confronting and also it sort of suggests that the book might glorify the murders in which it doesn't um, not at all so um, whilst I actually like the artwork I actually did the title fonts like all the fonts and title for graphics on the cover but um the original artwork I, I liked the idea but i think so i've even had some people look at it and just say oh yeah, i'm not really sure it's for me and i'm in the back of my head thinking it actually is it's it's just it is more mainstream so i i think i need to get a cover that's sort of back to basics and suggest that it is you know a thriller and not you know it's not all about jack jack jack's probably about half of this book it's not necessarily the focus on him so um, so yeah, I, I whilst I, I took that route, I'm definitely going to be seeking, um, you know, a new cover and, and design. And I've already got a couple that I've put together, and um, 
hopefully it'll be sort of rebranded in the next few weeks. Cool. My um, original cover for Sojourn came via the publisher, which is Dragon Moon Press out of out of Calgary, Canada. And when I bought the ebook rights back, I decided I wanted a new cover for those. And I work with a lady out of Singapore, of all places. She has done probably 12 or 14 covers for me because she is absolutely phenomenal. And um, it so I gave her an overview. I, I see it in my head, but I do not have the design skills to put it together you know, using any of the, the current programming. So I gave her an overview and she came back with roughs and I went, those are perfect. And so uh, I would love to upgrade the, the print editions, but the publisher still has the rights to those. So I, I haven't upgraded those, but the uh, ebook editions were exactly what I wanted. And I'm, I'm incredibly fussy about covers. And luckily I, I found the perfect person to do these for me and hopefully, she doesn't get too expensive for me because she's phenomenal. She's she's just amazing. Yeah, I actually like the cover for Surgeon a lot. All of Janet's covers, I, I'm, this is the first time I'm hearing that they're all done by the same artist, but now that I think about it, I mean, they, they you can tell, I, I think. I mean, they all have, they're very elaborate and they all have this really wild uh, science fiction-y style yeah. to them and everything. Yeah, with and the I, people in the background, yeah. I think that is important because, like Matt was saying, like, if I saw, no offense to Matt, if I saw, like, you, you do recognize the issue. If I saw his cover, and you're, you know, you are judging a book by its cover, I know the cliche, it's wrong, don't do it, but I probably would not pick up that book, you know, and and it could be a wonderful story, but that's, that's not sort the, the story that's going to draw me if I think that's what it's about, you know? No, absolutely. I actually had someone look at the cover and ask me if the book was a satire. And, and, that, <laughs> and at that Ooh. point I realized, okay, I've, uh, God, that, that's the thing is I've, you know, I, I am new to this and there's things that I'm going to learn. And, um, you know, I actually, one of those people that you know, I invite any criticism or praise, obviously, but I mean, that's how I learn and that's, that's how I produce a better, a better product and like I said I actually like the artwork but it's not actually serving the book well in terms of what story is inside so uh, share how we decided to write our story uh, the writing approach uh, that would be interesting to you know uh, uh, learn more about that from you guys I can start by telling how I uh, decided sure. to work it out sure, uh, for me everything I wrote had to bring the story forward what I found out reading a lot of fiction books is there's a lot of description, narrative, which sort of, you know, where you lose the reader at one point. If you have something where there's a lot of action going on, you want to maintain the rhythm. So what I decided to do is instead of having a lot of description and narratives, I decided to cut these description into small fragments and put them in the dialogue tags. So, the, you know, it was the uh, uh, characters actually describing where they were, you know, how they felt about the situation, instead of having the uh, narrator uh, doing it. The other thing I, I was concerned with is, um, you know, building the, uh, uh, the, the story. I, I decided to work it out as, uh, as I would have written a, a screenplay. So um, I, I decided to build scenes. And each scene had to have a beginning, a climax, 
uh, an end and you know a sort of uh, a way to letting the reader uh, know something's going to be still happening and bring the story forward so that was basically the two elements you know reducing the importance of the description and uh, focusing on the uh, uh, bringing the story always always bring the story forward uh, well the uh, my, this is Mike here for the Ripper's Hellbroth what I, I did was a lot of advice that the editor gave me one is that uh, you want to have a hook every page. And so I wanted to have something interesting and exciting in every single page of that book. And then so even my jokes, I uh, used the Victorian jokes, but the problem with that was that most of them were very uh, racist. But I still did that. And the other thing that uh, uh, what I caught myself doing was head hopping too much. So I would go, let's say I would have three... Um, inspectors in a uh, an omnibus speaking with each other then i would uh, the uh, i would be in the the mind of all three and uh, discussing as opposed to uh, the my editor said that you made the reader too exhausted by reading that so you got to stick to one be in one uh, one mind while you're doing that so it was uh, exciting that way the structure itself though you get the big picture and then you kind of go from there but as for me, I wrote uh, an outline um, of how I wanted the story to go and sort of bullet point chapters or, or scenes. Um, I've had a lot of people that have read my book say that it sort of reads out like a, like a movie, which is I actually take as a compliment because I wanted the book to just keep building and, and changing gears to, and getting um, like faster or more intense. The other challenge that I had was um, you know, I have to develop a backstory that, that does, you know, more or less set up a series. So, you know, for the first hundred pages, my protagonist isn't even in Whitechapel. So I wanted to still have that hundred pages as something that was interesting. And again, like more, the more people find out, the more they're, they're looking forward to, to when that happens. Um, one thing that I did that was completely unorthodox, though, was uh, I wrote through to chapter 22 and then I hit a, a major block, uh, mostly on account that I just figured I had to do a lot more research. Obviously, it was when he uh, had arrived in Whitechapel. But um, I had the first chapter I actually ever wrote for the book was was chapter 37, which was um, the, the Edo's murder. And that was, again, back to the Patterson competition that I was... I, that was the chapter I wrote. So I thought, you know what, I'll just pick up from here. And I wrote through to the end... So I had a, a 15 chapter or what I referred to as the gap. But um, the thing that was really unorthodox was I didn't um, go from 22 to 37. I went from 34 to 37, then 31 to 34, and more or less worked my way back. It was like the, the, the memento of, of novel writing. Um, but um, uh, it wound up actually working, but uh, it was, yeah, it was a strange one. But, um, but yeah, I, I wanted to... You know, tease the, the reader as well. Um, I, I put in a, a trial mission. My protagonist is sent to a, a Beatles concert, the first uh, the first concert where they were actually the Fab Four with Ringo, um, and just more or less you know, give people a taste of what the premise is like, and then they can sort of fashion their own ideas, like, oh, God, this could go anywhere once once uh, he's, you know, once he's in the, the East End. So, um, but I, I did have an outline. I put a lot of research into it as well, which I thanked myself for later when I was writing a chapter six months later. And, you know, I, I had details that I'd put in my outline 
and I, I didn't have to go back to, to to retrace and get all of those details. So, but uh, but yeah, it was I I, I hadn't uh, used an outline before, and that that was definitely critical for 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 me. I can't really ever use an outline. I've tried <laughs> one of those. It's not a wise idea to write your first book and think that's the only book you're writing and then realize there are two more and that they're all tied into time travel. That is, um, as a fellow time traveling writer, author, a friend of mine says, that's brain hurt. That's a really dumb move. And I have made sure not to do that after this series. But um, I wrote the first draft and then stepped back and went, hmm. Uh, I knew then at that point that I wanted to get the, the um, aspects of the Whitechapel killings and other things correct. So that's when I actually put all this into a spreadsheet, scene by scene, who is where, who is doing what, actually down to the times because I'm nuts. So, you know, I have date, time, whatever. And that way I could track what was going on with the Ripper case so that if my heroine was in a certain place and at one point she is very close to where uh, Liz Stride is killed, uh, that the timing is correct. And um, it, it actually worked being that crazy. Uh, I haven't been that crazy about any of my books after that, but that series required that degree of absolute, you know, drilling down. And by the time I got done, I had like three books and three, uh, three big spreadsheets of t hours after hours. But having done that degree of work, as I, as I rewrote the book, because I did the first draft and then went back in and filled out all the stuff I'd missed, I realized that at one point in one of the books, uh, the date was uh, when they had a London particular. And it was perfect because the London fog of that day matched exactly what was going on in my heroine's head at that point. And so it was it was perfect. It was one of those things I could slot in and 99% of the readers wouldn't even know whether it that it happened that day and those who did it went, oh yeah, I know that day and that's what happened, blah, blah, blah. So it was sort of a little Easter egg. And and if I had not taken the time to timeline this all out in Excel, on an Excel spreadsheet, I would have missed that. And so I'm really actually glad I spent all that time and effort. And I do still use spreadsheets now, but not to the degree I did with this series because it just was kind of an extraordinary thing. This is Daniel. I wrote the um, book as a like I said, as a diary, and did it in first person, which a lot of people say they don't like first person and everything, that you can't get enough of the story. But being psychological of the person itself, I thought that was a good way of putting it in there, and I, I enjoyed writing it like that. The last sentences that I have in the book the, of the story were the first sentences that I actually wrote. And then the end of the book is the first page of the book now, which was a little bit interesting. Uh, I, I swapped them around a little bit on that. But, you know, getting everything done in first person. And I, I worked as a pantser on this book mm -hmm. um, instead of a plotter. Uh, I didn't plot out. You know, I, I knew where I wanted the book to go, and I knew, you know, that I, it was a Jack the Ripper book that I wanted to go from this date to this date and then from this date to this date and skip all the, the parts in between and stuff like that. But as far as having a detailed outline, I did not use one of those. So 
I also use the first person point of view, which is quite a challenge because in the first drafts, the two first drafts, I had a, a quite a few subplots which I had to eliminate because of the uh, uh, first person point of view. But, you know, subplots could be very interesting, but uh, using the first point of view, you have to even focus even more on the content, you know, on the rhythm and everything because you don't have any side stories to, you know, either de deceive the reader or to bring out certain elements probably uh, as interesting as the main storyline. So I, I, I think that Daniel probably went to the same kind of uh, challenge uh, in running his book, his first-person point of view book. Yeah, you, you run into that type of challenge, but um, like I've got two books set up in the series that, you know, come come after Knife's Tale. So the second book and everything is a victim POV where it's a collection of short stories on what was happening in their lives and, you know, when they were murdered and stuff. And mm -hmm. that that is how I'm getting around, you know, being able to let people know more about, you know, the subplots and stuff like that of what was going on that I felt like I needed to be fleshed out a little bit more that I couldn't do during the first person. Matt, I was really pleased to hear what you said about changing uh, your cover. You obviously got some criticism and feedback and you've taken that on board. Um, the whole area of Ripperology tends to get a reputation for being the sort of haunt of uh, gore peddlers and, and, and the ghoulish. Have any of you guys had any really biting feedback from any readers? And if so, what was it and what did it cause you to change? I haven't had any negative feedback about my book, uh, except for a few technical issues in the book. But as far as, in, and when I mean technical issues, you know, I had a English professor that was having trouble reading my book because of the fact that it wasn't written the way they write today. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have any comments uh, about, you know, concerning the uh, wording, uh, neither about the uh, correctness of, you know, the actual factual, uh, the, the, the facts, the historical aspect. Uh, didn't get. I didn't really get any the, any of these uh, 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 negative comments. I would have expected to have some uh, comments about you know negative comments at most uh, because of the first po person point of view uh, approach, but nothing came out that negative at this day. I mean, um, Mike here. Uh, did Ian? Were you talking about the book cover? Not just the cover. Really, in general. Uh, Mainly, as I said, because Ripperology tends to get a bit of a, a blood-stained reputation <laughs> and uh, pe people can sometimes get slightly hysterical about things. But it's whether you've had any negative feedback or constructive feedback is probably the best way to put it about yeah, your, your content and what, if anything, did you change? Yes, there was one, uh, one example was is, uh, for the Ripper's Hell Broth. I purposely uh, don't like... Uh, blood and gore stuff. So I, I purposely tried to leave it as out as much as I could. But at the very end, my antagonist had to be vicious because there was a point where uh, how can you escape from, let's say, a city jailhouse when uh, there's somebody on the other side is you have to be ruthless. And let's say you have uh, the person that has control of the button to open that door uh, is told never to open that door, but if the killer has his friend 
or a woman, uh, the, the nurse that his kind of he likes uh, with a knife to her throat, would you open that door? And so it was more of a, a human option kind of thing. And so I had to get a little ruthless there. And I actually had one, one of my uh, uh, lady friends said that I don't like gore. So she uh, stopped reading them because of that, just that section. Um, as for me, I, I've had basically um, praise across the board for the story. I've obviously had the criticisms for the cover, which I'm definitely looking to, to change. But as the story goes, no, it's it's been good. Um, I've had a couple of people tell me that they've had trouble sleeping after le- reading a few <laughs> chapters. Um, but And it's not so much because of gore. It's just the fact that it was creepy and, and suspenseful. So... Um, but uh, someone that actually read my, my Edo's chapter um, that was reading the other submissions I had, she actually didn't make it through. She said she felt lightheaded and had to put it down, um, which, which, which was surprising. But I've had most people that are fine with the chapter, but um, you know, you're going to have, I guess, discrepancy amongst readers. So, um, But it was something I bared in mind, though, because as I mentioned, uh, for me, I, obviously, I've, I've got to cover the murders in good detail. But the things I don't want to get wrong, I don't want it to be, um, you know, coming across like it's a textbook. Uh, but also, I, I, I want, I don't want to be, you know, just pages and pages and pages of, of gore. So, yeah, it was just a massive balancing act. Um, just one little story about my note was I was chatting with a friend and he asked me, so do you believe your theory? I mean, obviously, every book puts a theory forward. And I said, no. And he said, well, why did you write it? I said, because I'm not writing a textbook. I'm writing a, you know, a story that people hopefully will, will find a good yarn. And I've gone with a theory that will you know, weave in very well with that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely listened to what people have said. And like I said, the, the, the story itself, people have been pretty much universal in the praise of it. And I've gone to the types of people that would be what I deem the harshest critics, that like the Ripper community, uh, my mother-in-law liked it. My <laughs> older sister liked it. And, you know, and if you can please those people, you, you've got to feel pretty good about what you've written. So, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, uh, and the cover itself is basically what I've come under criticism for. And I wear all that. You know, I didn't draw it, but I, it was my idea. And, you know, I ultimately gave sign-off on it. So, um, yeah, th- that's, that's the only thing that people have mentioned. And, therefore, it's something I'm going to be looking to change. I've been blessed. I haven't had much um, much hassle from anybody. Uh, no one took me to task, other than Allie, every now and again. But <laughs> uh, no, no, I've I've been very very lucky that people received the story and and didn't didn't have an issue when things got nasty in the story because every now and again they do. But I think it's also kind of how you approach the, the gore and, and whatever. And also, let's face it, these folks are reading Ripper fiction. It's not going to be all sunshine and puppies. So, you know, they, they have to expect there's going to be some degree of, of violence there. But, no, I've, I've been blessed. Yeah, that, that's actually what I said to my, the person that felt lightheaded reading the book. I said, this is, this is what happened. I said, I can't really sugarcoat it. Because if I do that, the people that actually know what happened will, will crucify me when they read it. So <laughs> yeah, it, it is truly balanced when you try to uh, cover you know, the, Ripper, the Ripper case in, in fiction like that. 
That's probably something I, uh, I would have expected. You know, people making comments on your writing style, the, you know, the writer's approach, and not only on the story itself. It's disappointing, you know. The story is nice, but, uh, you know, the, the, the concept of constructive uh, uh, comments, uh, opinions, you don't get that much of them, uh, I think. They like the story or they don't like it. You know, they're going to tell you why they liked it, but not, uh, not too much, I mean. All right, well, Jana and Mike's books um, have been out for a few years. Bernard's and Matt's and Daniel's are pretty new. But what is everyone working on next? And is it going to be anything Ripper-related? Not me. Uh, I've already had uh, uh, another book project on the table. It's, uh, it's, it's, again, it's going to be an historical fiction, but there's no, no blood, not, not much blood involved in it. Uh, but that's about it. Uh, no, no more GTR books. And Daniel, uh, you had I, said you, you're you're uh, starting a series, right? Yeah, I'm doing a three book series in it right now. Like I said, the first one is Knife's Tale. The second one is a victim POV. It's a set of sh- short stories on all the different victims that he has in the first book. You know what what was their story or what was going on with them? You know when they got murdered. The third book will be where did where did he go and you know, why did the murder stop in London when when they did? And you'll you get a little bit of that, you know, information from the from the first book if you pay attention to the first book. But okay. that's what I've got on that. And then I I do a lot of what ifs in, in writing and everything. And I've I've got, you know, some other books that I'll be working on this year too, um, along with my Victorian cookbooks and stuff that I write. So, if anybody's interested in cooking, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I actually, my publisher's working on getting my first one um, published right now, which is a Victorian ketchup cookbook, and it has over 200 recipes for ketchup and over 60 different flavors, all oh, wow. recipes from 1910 to the late 1700s. Wow. wow. But this is Matt. For, for me, um, I have started the second book uh, already, trying to fashion out a, a series based on uh, using time travel to solve cold cases. I think it's a good well to, to draw from. Um, the, the, this one will be threading together a few um, deaths of famous musicians that all died young, either accidentally or the, their deaths are unsolved, and it's going to be wrapping that in sort of a like there's a they're all linked more or less um and i have started the, uh, conceiving a third book as well but obviously sort of one book at a time um and, and also i have thought of uh, as a complete oh um, and yeah ba- basically my first book with jack the ripper was was it the the next ones will not have uh, jack the ripper at all um yeah, just maybe some little throwbacks to the to the old first story, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also uh, might be writing something, uh, a book that's autobiographical, um, uh, and basically it's about raising a a child on the spectrum. My, my son is um, is diagnosed on the spectrum, and we've had quite a journey. But I think we've made some really tough and hard, but good decisions, and we've got our son in a really good place where he's attending mainstream school and I and from what I've learned from all of it is the most important information is not from doctors or therapists but it's from people who walk in our shoes 
So I wanted to try and write sort of mock like our family's story um, in a way of trying to sort of pay that forward to other people that, you know, that, go, yeah, that sort of have, have this battle and, and sort of live it every day. Um, but, um, but my wife said, nope. You need to write another Axford first, so I'm doing. Um, so I'm definitely working on the new one with the, uh, and it's yeah going to have a lot of musicians and their deaths are tied together and they're linked. So it's exciting, and I got to say, uh, as people that have written series would know, I think writing a second book once you start giving those characters new dialogue and, and new actions, you you really have this big smile on your face, and it's sort of like getting the band back together kind of kind of feeling and um i'm definitely enjoying this second book and thank god i don't think it's going to have as much research as what the first one first one did so so it's good okay mike here the uh with uh, my Rip- the rippers Halbroth, it is the one of a three-part series the next one's jack's lantern and then curse of the bayou beast and they've been taken over by the publisher and the biggest reason is kind of uh what ali had said in a previous podcast if uh, especially for the English types, if you don't have this properly edited, it really kind of uh, irritates a lot of people. So uh, that's what's going to be happening on the uh, fiction side. But I'm also uh, I'm always knee deep in research with Tumblety, and uh, that's uh, so the the nonfiction side is is kind of the bigger section right now. As as a matter of fact, we just found out uh, that uh, Francis Tumblety had a an alias when he was arrested so uh we've got new new stuff every every week we find new stuff on this guy and uh when he was arrested in london for the yeah. yes indecent assault what was his alias mike go ahead and tell us <laughs> i would never mention <laughs> name. you just got it by the way huh i uh oh his name I, would, I would never mention maurice simmons Okay. <laughs> That's a, I'm sorry, Maurice Fitzsimmons. Uh, but, so yeah, we'll be discussing that too. For me, can I um, ask you a question, Mike, about your when's your next nonfiction uh, Tumblety book coming out? Uh, it's in final edit. She said that it would be ready for me for the final cut last week. <laughs> mm. So oh. they want to have it. They want to have it available uh, because uh, of this um, on the Travel Channel. In March, there's going to be something going on. So they want to have it available by that time. Uh, for me, I've had requests for some short stories based in my Time Rubbers world, but that's going to require jumping back into all that research and whatever. So I'm, I'm tempted to leave it alone. I finished off a, uh, a totally unrelated series, the seventh book, and it lasts November. So I'm kind of starting over now in another series, which is under a pseudonym. It's under the, the name Chandler Steele. It's it's actually romantic suspense thrillers, and I, that's the one I'm currently working on. But since we just moved to a new country, there's so many distractions here that don't involve sitting in front of a computer, and so it's it's going very very slowly. But I, that's the next book. It's going to be called Knife Edge, and uh, it's going to get into some interesting topics. I like doing something very, very topical with my uh, suspense thrillers. So, you know, if I'm not blowing things up, it's kind of boring. And uh, you, um, your, your blog on um, living in Portugal is really interesting to read as well. Thank um, you. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Uh, so much so that I'm trying to convince my family to move. Um, 
<clears throat> but there, there's two, you know, you, you do have some, 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 you described some things that just won't sit well with uh, my wife. Uh, yeah. Uh, li- li- I told her the same thing. I said the same thing. I'm like, wait, no air conditioning, no washing <laughs> machine. What? What? Yes. No. Well, I have a washing machine. I just don't have a dryer. Now there are people who do have dryers, but you know, it's for us We're my husband's retired. So it's, it's pretty minimalist and it's great because we sold out all the house and all our stuff. So we have like no stuff. It's like we're back in college and you've got like a beanbag chair and that's about it. It's great. So it's kind of come full circle, but you have to have a certain mentality to handle that. <laughs> oh, and all the um, earlier posts about um, the immigration process and everything mm-hmm. is really interesting as well. So hopefully you keep that up because I'm enjoying Definitely, I'm going to get caught up this week now that we no longer have Portuguese colds. We've apparently passed those on to Allie. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Do, do they ha- have any good cigars and um, port wine there? The port wine and the and the wine are incredibly excellent and incredibly less expensive. Oh, my God, are they less expensive. Uh, I haven't tried the cigars yet. My husband would shoot me. But for me, whiskey and cigar, you get me... Get me back to the States or over to London, and I'm going to be hitting the whiskey and the cigars. <laughs> well, I, I live about 18 miles from Jack Daniels, so. Oh, okay. Okay, there you go. And, and I'm, I'm actually a Tennessee squire with them. So. Yep, so you're, you're set. <laughs> uh, I consider myself lucky living here in Mexico, and it costs me about four or five times less than it would cost me in Canada. The temperature's nice. Mm-hmm. And everything in Canada, and uh, we still have a, a rather big motorhome there. And uh, uh, we're living in a 18th century uh, old uh, Spanish uh, colonial house, uh, we, you know, which was restored. So I've got everything going on for me. Whereas I've just moved to Utah, which means I can't buy alcohol today, and also probably <laughs> yeah. so. So that's good. <laughs> well, it's been a very interesting discussion. I want to thank all of the authors for participating today, and wish you all in your books the very best success. I'll be putting links to your books in the show notes, which accompany the podcast when they're downloaded, so our listeners can go right to Amazon and check them out. So I hope uh, that you all enjoyed being on the show. Thank you for having us. See you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Rippercast's Ripper Fiction Roundtable Discussion Panel with Michael Hawley, the author of The Ripper's Hellbroth, coming to us from Buffalo, New York. Matt Lation, author of Jack the Ripper Live and Uncut, was coming to us from Tampa, Florida. Bernard Boley, the author of My Ripper Hunting Days, was in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Jana Oliver is the author of the Time Rover series, including Sojourn, Virtual Evil, and Madman's Dance, and she was in Porto, Portugal. And Daniel Dark, the author of Nice Tell, was in Nashville, Tennessee. Allie Ryder was co-hosting to us from Orlando, Florida, and Ian Wilson joined the show today from Salt Lake City, Utah. The Amazon links to all of our guest authors' books will be available in the show notes, and I encourage you all to check them out. We are a podcast sponsored by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 panel discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian true crime. 2018 sees us entering our 10th year as a podcast, and we wouldn't have lasted this long without all of your support. 
So I thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.